So currently today, when someone talks to you, you feel like you understand what they're saying 100%, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you don't. What's shaking? Welcome back to the All In Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. I today am excited about talking about AI, and I have an amazing dude who has over 30 years of technology experience. He started in the U.S., and now he's in New Zealand. We're going to talk about that, too. He's been in the U.S. Marine Corps and a major innovative technology enthusiast and AI expert. Sean Muller, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. I really appreciate it. Dude, I'm excited to talk, and I love the hat you got going on too with the beard. It's a great brand look. Yeah, yeah, that, it's it's a branding thing, but uh, <laughs> it it just kind of it kind of happened, and and so I've just stayed with it. <laughs> good, good, good. So let's start. We started talking about this pre-show, and then I had to shut myself up because it was going to be a good answer. I could, say. <laughs> but first, thank you for serving in the in the Marines, and you moved from the U.S. to New Zealand. What's the story about the move? Yeah, so I, I visited New Zealand in 2005 with my family, and and we fell in love with the country and the people, and and it's one of I've with the Marine Corps. I went quite a few places after the Marine Corps, uh, working in IT. I've been in quite a few places. I've never seen anything like the beauty that's in the physical beauty that's in New Zealand. Um, but it's kind of like living in the states, right? You visit the Caribbean, and on the way back, you're like, oh, I, I could live in the Caribbean but no one's going to pay me enough money to live in the Caribbean. So there's no chance I'm ever going to live in the Caribbean. It, it, it was kind of like that when we were uh, coming back from New Zealand. And, uh, and about, uh, about eight years later, IBM New Zealand contacted me and said, would you be willing to move to New Zealand to, to be the senior network architect for New Zealand? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, Went home and talked with the family and everybody uh, at the time, uh, two kids um, and my partner. And we, yeah, everybody was all in. And uh, we moved over in 2013. Um, absolutely love it. Uh, became citizens last year. Um, New Zealand and the U.S. both agree to dual citizenship. It's one of the few countries that can, you can have dual citizenship. Um, yeah, absolutely love New Zealand. That's awesome, my man. That's really cool because I know that, yeah, most... Uh most countries with dual citizenship in the U S because the U S is very pretty much just gung ho on you. This is your place <laughs> until you decide it's not. Yeah. But that's awesome, man, that there's that, that collaboration that exists. Were you in technology when you were in the Marines or did that start after? No, no, I was, uh, I was reconnaissance. I was special operations in the Marine Corps. Awesome. Uh, yeah. After, after desert shield, desert storm, um, I went to second reconnaissance battalion, which, has now been consumed into another unit um, and did mostly counter narcotics operations in Central and South America for three and a half years. Well, that sounds incredible. Wow. Did, Not much call for that once I got out, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no joke. When you got into tech, when, when did that start? Just immediately after you got out? Uh, so I uh, originally I was going to university uh, to be an aerospace engineer. And uh, as happens with a lot of young men, I fell in love and got married. Um, and needed to support her. Um, so I started working in IT as kind of a side job, but intending to always go back to aerospace engineering. Um, five years on, I realized that I had found a career that fit me. And uh, for probably 
for about 22 years, right up until about 2016, um, 2015, 2016, I did nothing but networking, which in, I mean, in IT, that's unusual to have somebody that's just pure networking. And I did it for some pretty big companies, Levi Strauss, Fidelity Investments, uh, Charles Schwab, um, large multinational organizations. And, and so when I got to move to New Zealand with IBM, I figured uh, I'm going to retire. This is, I'll be a senior network architect until I hit my whatever number of years at IBM. And then I'll just retire as a senior network architect. Um, and it wasn't until I got down here in New Zealand and I got the opportunity because it's a small, it's, it's a much smaller pond in New Zealand than it is in the States. So uh, changing careers in the state or changing tax in the States is a little bit harder to do. Uh, down here in New Zealand, it's a little bit easier because there's a limited pool of people. So I got an opportunity to do uh, cloud architecture and I started getting enthusiastic about cloud adoption. And I saw the value that cloud could bring to AI adoption. The, the problem with AI, uh, you know, five years ago was you had to have a mainframe or a supercomputer or something to get real value out of machine learning and AI. The cloud vendors brought that down a level. So now it's small and medium businesses can adopt it. And, and because of that, and because data scientists have been doing more and more work on it, the cost for even small amounts of machine learning adoption have come down and down and down. By the way, we're going to see the same from quantum computing. So currently today, quantum computing is massively expensive, but in the next in the coming years, as the cloud providers begin offering it, it'll the price will come down and down and down and down. Quantum computing is just mind-boggling to me too. I love how any specific bit of data can either, you know, because it's binary, you know, on or off, one or zero, but it's literally both until you actually go to look at it. It holds both states until you actually go to look at it. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, it's. Um, I I did a post. Um, I, I want to say three months ago, and I I highlighted the fact that uh, quantum computing is really going. So we have good AI now. We have good machine learning now. We can get good predictive analysis. We can do we can do uh, transcription services. We can even do text to voice automatically from a knowledge base, and and, and it's and it's pretty good. Quantum computing backing AI will make it appear seamless. So you'll be able to have a conversation with the AI, and you won't realize you're having a conversation with an AI. Right on. I mean, even medical applications when it comes to quantum computing and AI combined, I can't wait to see the moment to where, you know, because we have the vaccine, right, that, that's starting to proliferate around the world. And they had to rush all the clinical trials and the, the human-based trials. But you know as well as I do that quantum computing tied in with AI completely eliminates the need for those things because you can load it up with data from every possible genome that exists in the entire world and know what the effect of that chemical structure is going to have on the human body within just a couple of days without touching a single human. It's incredible. There have been a couple of papers out of MIT um, specifically talking about that quantum computing will allow so the, the, one of the big problems with machine learning is you have to have a lot of data i had a company come to me and they said can we get an ai assistant for our service management platform so they're getting all these logs and everything from all the different it systems and they want they want ai to be able to offer them suggestions or predict when things are going to go wrong or something like that and i said that's great do you have a bunch of data like 10,000 points of data about these events happening and they said no 
<laughs> apparently today that, that becomes yeah. that becomes a challenge right yeah without yeah. data points to be able to reference it quantum computing kind of flips that on its head the papers are it's are starting to indicate that you're you're absolutely right the quantum computing will allow smaller and smaller data points while still being able to get the advantage of predictive analysis out of the machine learning algorithms it's pretty fantastic. I mean, it's this is going to be life changing. I mean, everything. And now, I mean, can I get from you because you're more qualified to answer this question than I am? Because I'm I'm not necessarily in AI. I just work and function around AI. AI is most definitely a buzzword that exists right now across the world. Yeah, and it, almost like five G, right? <laughs> Everyone started labeling crap five G before five G really was even a thing, and it's still not really even a thing at this point. You know, it's not it's not standardized everything else. My phone my phone actually showed a five G on it when I was in Wellington, the capital of New Zealand. I was in downtown the other day and I looked down and there was a five G up in the yeah, corner. And you're like liar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So yeah, on, on that spirit, what what is AI? Oh, yeah, I thought I had a feeling you were going to ask me that question. Uh, look, what is real AI? There's a better question. What is real okay, AI? So that, that's a good question. So l let me start with a couple working definitions that I use. And by the way, there are a whole bunch of papers that define exactly what AI is. And, and machine learning is a subset of AI and deep learning is a subset of machine learning. And, and yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff around. But I have good... When I try and talk with CIOs and CEOs, I try and have good working, understandable um, definitions for them. And, and basically, the way I've boiled it down is, is AI is an automated function that uses machine learning to do something. So if you have a chatbot, the chatbot portion of it's the AI because it interacts with somebody. The machine learning is the natural language processing and text-to-speech if you're doing audio or, or speech-to-text if you're listening to audio. Um, machine learning is the model that learns over time. So you may, you, you, a developer codes the model and then begins feeding it data and the model gets better and better and better and better and better over time. That's kind of the difference between AI and ML. Now, what is real AI? Um, Real AI cuts across several domains, right? The, the easiest ones are natural language processing and predictive models. Um, so with, with AI, you can do, you can do things like, um, so currently today, when someone talks to you, you feel like you understand what they're saying 100%, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah you don't. Um, they've done a massive number of studies, and the reality is, is that you get somewhere between 75 and 80% of the words the people are saying. But what happens is your brain plays it over and over in your head until you get close enough to 100% that you understand it. Most natural language processing uh, models currently today are running 88 to 92% accurate. So the model, you can hand it um, a... Uh, um, uh, a block of text from a document or something, and it will understand what it is that it's reading. Or you can hand it an audio file and it will understand what's being said within the audio file. So that's natural language processing. Uh, predictive analysis is I have a set of data and I'm going to give you a percentage likelihood that that thing or something is going to happen again or to identify an anomaly in that block of data. So let's say we have thousands of hours of videos of people fishing and you want to see you only care about the, the 10 minutes around where they did some fishing that was illegal 
You can either sit and watch the thousands of hours of video, or you can feed it to a model that comes back and tells you this little block of time is most likely when you'd be interested in that video. So that kind of predictive analysis. Um, those are the areas that it really it, it really works and is real today. And by the way, there are a thousand business use cases. I had a discussion with a, um, a dairy owner here in New Zealand, and he went out and he spent a small amount of money and had a little bit of machine learning done. So a dairy is a convenience store. <laughs> oh, got you. I was thinking like an ice cream shop. I'm glad to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suddenly, it clicked in my head. I was like, he's not going to know what a dairy is. Right? Okay, you say dairy. I'm thinking like creamery, you know, like, like someplace I'm going to go grab two scoops. Yep. <laughs> New Zealand, they call them dairies. So this, this guy is an owner operator, right? He's the sole proprietor for this convenience store. And, and he read in this Forbes magazine that he, you know, want, so small business, he has very low margins on what he does. And he read in this Forbes magazine that he really needed to look at machine learning. So he went and spent a couple thousand dollars and had a little bit of work done. And now he has month on month better predictions about what stock he needs to order. And so he is keeping less stock in the back that can go bad. And, he, and in one year's time, he's seen... Uh, his his shrinkage from uh, um, ruined product has dropped to almost nil, and and he very rarely has customers come in and ask for something he doesn't have because his he's able to order better because he has a better understanding because he has all the data he has years and years of data of what people have bought and when they bought it and so he was able to feed that into a model and now the model is able to give him a likelihood that something is going to happen. So from a retail consumption, that's massive just from product uh, ordering status. So if even at a small and medium business, let's large enterprises, if they're not doing machine learning and AI, if they don't have that as a strategy, they're ripe for disruption by startups and by other large organizations. In fact, I don't know any large multinationals that are not investing large sums of money in AI and ML development today. Well, yeah, the data is where all the secrets are and that's where all your guidance is. Yeah. That's anybody who's not tracking data. It, it does kind of blow my mind that nobody really dives into that, you know, and you see even, I think over the past year, I think the airline industry is a fantastic example of this on how they, you know, it, at first, you know, for the first many months and still now, I think they're starting to finally adapt because, you know, at least in the, in the U S you have Southwest airlines, right. That has always operated on a point to point model. And then you have the big three, United American Delta, that have always hub and, uh, a hub and spoke sort of scenario. And they kept the hub and spoke, the big three did, even through most of the pandemic and cut their schedules way down to under 10%. I know I was traveling all around filming a movie last year. I had over 150 nights in a hotel and getting flights at the right times. I mean, I didn't care about my, my status on United anymore. I just needed to find the right times. It didn't matter what airline I was on. I just needed a freaking seat to get where I needed to go. And it got tough. But then I I believe I saw, an, I can't remember which of the big three. I was probably Delta because they even started outfitting some of their pilots with different iPads and stuff around this time too to, to figure out the right routes and the timings on these things. 
you know, and I know Delta's coming on top along with Southwest in this because they adapted using the data that they have. And I saw the, the same report. You saw American was the, the very bottom, you know, of everybody. I mean, I'm even talking other airlines in between, like freaking Frontier and, you know, uh, uh, what is it, Spirit and everybody else, you know, we're, we're making up this middle pack, but you had Southwest and Delta at the top and then this middle pack of just these, you know, regional carriers. And then way down below was United and American. Because they didn't really pay attention to the data. Well, and and there, it's a scaling issue, right? So um, the larger the company is, the scale of the data goes up. Um, and if you try to, by the way, uh, digging into that data is something a human could do. Yeah, you, oh, for theoretically, sure. Yeah, theoretically, you could get a statistician to come in and dive through the data and provide you something. The problem is, is that you'd need a massive number of them, right? You you with when you get to United and American, and by the way. You, United and American, most of the airlines have a history with machine learning. So five, eight years ago, they engaged with IBM to give better predictive analysis for fuel and they cut their, so they didn't, no longer filled the planes up fully. So they would say, oh, the optimum amount of fuel is maybe 80% for this flight that gives them a safety margin, but gets them to their destination, they spend less fuel. So they have a they have a history with it, but you're right, the, the data and machine learning gives you access to that data without scaling the people up. Um, and that's that's really the game changer at the larger end and the larger sections of data. I did some work with the New Zealand police down here and they have they have a map. So they're a federal police. They go across or uh, they're a nationwide police. They go across the entire country. They have a massive amount of data and again, no way to look into that data. So they're now using. Uh, where it's approved, where where it has gone through the right ethics, ethical um, reviews, they're using machine learning where it makes sense to provide them and uh, guidance and help, and it, and it's having huge benefits for the public. I'm sure it is, yeah, and I'm sure there's the nuances, especially when you get into the ethics of something like that. Have you ever seen the movie Minority Report with Tom <laughs> <Yeah>. Cruise? <laughs> this is for all the 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 geeks out there, right? Like us, <laughs> but it, you know, they, they were using almost like psychics in that movie to try to predict what was when some, or see the future when somebody was going to commit murder. Why, why did they carve it onto a wooden ball? That was, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. That, that was interesting too. Maybe because it was, per there has to be some significance, I would think from a filmmaking yeah, perspective. Well, yeah. yeah. I, so it's interesting. I had a, I had a, a commissioner here in New Zealand. He asked me, he said, we have tons of data. And he goes, I, I need to know if machine learning can do this. And he goes, there's this one corner in this one location. If I have the data, can you predict the likelihood that they'll on any given day, can you predict the likelihood that there'll be a crime there? And I said, yes, of course. I, I mean, I'm going to give you a percentage. It's going to be like, 76% chance there's a crime there or something like that, if, if you have the data. And he goes, okay, what if I station a police officer there after you tell me that because it's high enough that I think it, and I said, then I can't predict anything. And he went, why not? You just said you could predict it. I go, as soon as you station a police officer there, you change your data. So none of your data represents having a police officer at that corner. So I can't predict anything. And he goes, you're the first person that's ever explained it to me. That totally makes sense. It changes right. the environment, changes all the parameters. Yeah. yeah. I've, cha I've changed everything. And he goes, totally. He goes, we've been chasing this machine learning thing to predict where the crimes were going to be. And the reality is, is that we've reacted to it and said the machine learning is not working. And of course it's not working because we've now deployed a police officer there. Yeah. So, so, so what yeah. do they focus on then? Response time? Would that be a better use of that so that they could be... Uh, uh, 
So it, it so there are a couple use cases in in uh, in law enforcement that make sense. Anomaly detection in video is one is a big one, right? So if you have if you want so the UK, right? They have video cameras, closed circuit TV everywhere, but you can't watch all of it. So how do you track a car through all that video feed? Well, you do it by anomaly detection. You identify the license plate, and then you have it scan through all of the video feeds looking for that license plate as an anomaly. And it and, and then it tells you, okay, these are the sections of video you need to look at. That is a really good use case for machine learning. Very little ethics uh, around that. It's, yeah, uh, versus the, uh, the flip side is trying to predict a murder. Yeah, and that's why I thought about Minority Report and the ethics of that because the the film, the the I remember the ethics even portrayed in the film was well they haven't committed the crime yet, but we're going to arrest them and imprison them anyways, and that's where I could see a legitimate, maybe future, issue with machine learning when it's used in things with law enforcement because you could probably predict you know even going into a neighborhood or let's even say into a high school. You know, the probability, you know, even tie it to what grade students are achieving in that high school and their probability to bring a gun into school or, or deal drugs in the school or whatever. So China's doing a lot of this um, and uh, you yeah. talk about ethics challenges, but they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're doing analysis of people's faces to identify if they're paying attention, to identify if they're understanding what, what's doing. I will tell you, there have been a couple papers and there are a couple municipalities not New Zealand, that are actually looking at video feeds and based on body language, identifying shoplifters. Um, that's borderline minority report territory. Yeah, that's right on. That person is acting this way. And based on other people that have acted that way, that's most likely a shoplifter. Um, there are some ethical concerns around that. I, I Do I think we can ever get past that? Maybe. Um, but I think there are so many use cases for machine learning. So, so let me give you an example. So a good ethical use of machine learning would be triaging phone calls. So currently today, more, yeah, most police services are underwater with people calling and asking, frequently asked questions, questions they can answer if they just went to the web. Uh, a natural language processing could listen to that question and could provide the answer from the website as well as information about where on the website to go and free up a person to be able to talk to a victim. You got it. Uh, yeah, that you could even a, look at the waveforms of the voice to figure out if there's fear or or whatever in the voice. Yeah. So that's a secondary use case. So secondary use cases is that transcribe everything. So most police services worldwide it's 30 to 90 days to get access to a phone call to the police. So if you're investigating a crime, it takes you time to get access to the recording of that call. Transcription service and emotional analysis of both the caller, but also the call taker. So the person in the contact center, their emotional context could have an impact on the person calling. So uh, natural language processing and emotional analysis of those calls could be useful. They're not definitive. I, mean, I wouldn't go into court and say, oh, here's a transcript that said the person said they did it, and here's their emotional state. But uh, in, in investigative services, it's the accumulation of the data, right? And this is just another piece of data that could be useful. That's a really good uh, ethical use of it would be to provide transcription services and to provide, uh, as long as everybody understands that this, the emotional analysis is a percentage likelihood assessment, right? So 
uh, a really excitable person could sound angry on the phone. Um, it's just an assessment and it has to be backed up and validated by other things. That's amazing. I'm excited at where this is going to go. You know, and at the same time, as long as we hold a little bit of caution, you know, because I, I don't see, it's, I don't know, going back to like the geek days, you know, and everyone, there's probably been 18 different claims over the past 20 years that Skynet is real now, you know, like when Google came online <laughs> the first time, you know, well, well, that's true. But at the same time, you know, maybe we don't necessarily have to worry about that so much until quantum computing and AI start to merge because that's a different scenario. Oh, there's a whole... There's a whole consciousness. Yeah. Like it's borderline consciousness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you're right. I think, <clears throat> so AI, the, the big, the big advantage is, is that AI is going to, so I don't, I, I don't know if you carry an iPhone in your pocket, but um, if you have Siri in your pocket, if you have an Alexa, it is, <laughs> I do, I do too. Yes, I do. Uh, I got to be careful. Otherwise. Alexa might listen to me. Um, yeah, she but, answers sometimes, even when we're doing a podcast. <laughs> so, I know it is. Yeah. It's awesome. yeah. um, <laughs> that's you're going to have a personal assistant, and it's going to provide you things. It's going to provide you. Uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm sure you follow some social media. The trying to follow all the social media feeds is insane. I I open Twitter like once a day, and I'm like. Yeah, okay. I can't, I, I don't have time to go through and dig out all of the gems that are in here. A personal assistant is going to be able to do that for you. It's it's going to be able to, again, it's going to scale. It's going to work 24-7. Your AI assistant is going to look at all of the different feeds and go, hey, Rick, this is important. You, based on the stuff you told me before, you might want to take a look at this. And you might want to take a look at this. And you might want to take a look at this. That's going to be very real. And it's probably within the next three years. Um, it's going to plug into all your different systems. It'll be similar to your iPhone. Um, you'll have, you know, the equivalent of, um, Apple play in your car. That'll be your assistant in your car. You'll have the smart speakers will front end for your personal assistant, and that will provide you, and it'll make you more efficient. It'll give you access to things that you, if you could sit down and spend the time 24 seven and review all that stuff you would be able to get it yourself. This will be able to give it to you faster and be able to use it. And it'll also be able to provide you some predictive analysis. And it might say, hey, if you leave five minutes early from work, you're going to miss all the traffic. No doubt. Siri does that now on the iPhone. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I'll get in my car and it'll say, would you, you know, suggested destination just because of the time of day where I'm leaving from and where it knows that I usually go to. That's the beginning part. Yeah. For sure. Or even call this person, you know, a suggested activity, call this person based upon your geolocation, time of day. Yeah, it, it's insane. And, you know, that's great that all this is self-contained right here, right now, at least we think it is. Yeah, and you're talking, hey, the personal assistant, you know where I'm going with this now. <laughs> the privacy scenarios with something like this, you know, because in order to, how do you balance the ethics and privacy with functionality? Because they're, there has to be sharing of some information in order for it to function the way it needs to. Yeah. So it, it's a good question. Um, it's interesting because uh, so Google and a couple of the other big players currently today, let's say you're a soda manufacturer, right? And you go to them and you go, Hey, I, I want, I'm going to give you my data and I want you to provide me some predictive analysis around maybe which flavors are going to sell in which locations and stuff like that. And they give you a pre-built model that does that. And you feed your data into guess what? Coca-Cola and Pepsi have also fed their data in that model. That's what's been 
train that model. So theoretically, you're actually using in, and they call it industry data. Industry data is just other companies' data. And they're absolutely, they're using that data to make that algorithm work for you and be able to give you an answer. You're absolutely right, Rick. I Look, we have become addicted to free. So the vast majority of people in the world, Facebook is free, Google is free, um, you know, uh, Twitter is free. I use the I use the things that are free. If someone came to you and said, "Hey, we're going to charge you five dollars a month so that you can use Twitter," and by the way, only ten percent of the world is going to be on it because the other ninety percent don't want to pay the five dollars a month, I'd be like, "I'm in." <laughs> actually, but yep. but the vast majority of people would say, "No, I get my stuff for free. Why would I?" <clears throat> You're not getting it for free. Um, you are paying with your data. Now, everybody, they've been, by the way, all the pundits have been saying that for several years now, and they think they're getting through and they're not. What you're paying with is the logs of your activity. So they're watching how you do things, and that's the data that the pundits have been talking about. Yeah, okay, personal data and, and privacy data and all that stuff. No, no, no. The data they're talking about is how you use the products. I mean, that's what Facebook makes their money on is, is that they see that you click on something when something happens. That's an action you take. So they know that if they give you 10 of those, you're going to click on them 10 times and then they get paid 10 times. So they they feed you that data that way. Um, and I don't know that we can get off that. I, I, I mean, I'm getting older now. Um, and uh, when I was younger, I was probably more optimistic. And I listened to a lot of guys that talk about, you know, uh, gaming theory and, um, you know, incentives. And it's very difficult. If you're, I, I have learned personally the golden treadmill. So once people start paying you to do this job, to, to take a cut in pay to go do something else is very, very difficult. So now imagine you're a billionaire that you own a company and the company is doing something that you suddenly decide you don't like to do. How do you walk away from that? How do you undercut your company and say, no, that's not the way we're going to do it anymore. We're going to start charging you. And I mean, Apple is better than most because they've kept everything pretty locked down and private, but at the same time, they haven't opened themselves up marketplace-wise. So they've had all kinds of antitrust they own the the store as well as the platform, as well as the gateway into the store. That's caused some problems. Google, on the other hand, has pretty much opened it up so that anybody can post into it. And it's free. But they track all your usage data and then they sell that. They sell that to Facebook. To Facebook, sell that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, by the way, I occasionally in conversations and video chats. And cause I, I mean, I use Google and uh, all the products I'll throw out something like Swiss army knife. And then I, I check my Facebook feed uh, the next couple of days to see if Swiss army knife advertisements come up. Yep. Yep. Dude, this happened to me. I've referenced it, I think once before, but it was like uh, scamper vans or something like that. And you know, yeah. I never searched for it. Never put it into Google or anything. All I did was talk about it in the vicinity of my phone. <laughs> and then I look on Facebook and there's an ad for freaking scamper vans. If you want to go look it up, go ahead, people looking. But they're this, these crazy vans that you can get that are built, you know, made to go like glamping is really what it is. Yeah, and they're, they're in, uh, I think, Atlanta, somewhere around that area or Mississippi. I don't remember. I didn't get it because that was the, I was supposed to go meet former President Jimmy Carter. 
And that was the whole thing. He lives in like the middle of nowhere. And so for this select group of people, this 10 people that were invited, they said, here's what we suggest. You know, go to Scamper Van. Yeah. <laughs> Fly into Atlanta, get a Scamper Van, then you drive three hours in the middle of the nowhere to some church, and that's where we'll meet Jimmy Carter. You know, but all I did was talk about it. That's it. I just mentioned the words. And then a day later, 24 hours, I see a freaking ad for these things on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so people don't pay for email addresses. They, they everybody has a Gmail account or a Yahoo account. Google the- looks at everything for analysis. They strip out your personal information, but they look at every single word, every single letter in all of your email. That's right. And I, I said that to an executive who wanted to cut his entire company over to Gmail because he's, he's like, "Oh yeah, this is cheaper than Microsoft Office." And I went, I went, you know how when you start typing and it makes predictive text within the Gmail, and he goes, "Yeah," and I go, "That's because it's reading all your emails." And he went. I go, here's the privacy statement. Look, Google's not hiding anything. No, they're they not. Share. They're transparent. They list it. Yeah. But, but nobody reads those things. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, geez. <laughs> uh, tinfoil. We went down the tinfoil hat rap. We, we did a little bit, but this is this is the real the real deal too, man. I mean, th- this is just how things work. Yeah, and being in cyber security on my side, you know, there's a big privacy component to that. AI is really transforming the cyber areas too, man. It's incredible. I've been pushing. So I had a, I did, I have a podcast and and I did an interview with Kevin Johnson, who's the uh, CEO of uh, Secure Ideas. It's one of the biggest uh, security firms in the U.S. And, um, and we, we talked about this. They have, so for those people that don't work in IT, we have a scaling problem. And the scaling problem is, is there's not enough people to actually look at all the events that are occurring. Um, so that's across operations, everything, but security is even in a worse state. They, they don't have enough people to look at all of the security events coming in. Um, and Kevin believes, and and I believe too, and I've been talking with several people about this, that AI enabled security operations is, is the future. So luckily security, we have tons of security data. The security team logs everything. So if you can take that data and feed it into a model, then you can start to do predictive analysis around when an event is going to happen. And I, so there are some people that predicted the solar wind stuff ahead of time. Um, in fact, uh, I believe one, an executive quit because the board wouldn't invest enough people into to setting it aside. But there's low hanging fruit and then there's, uh, you know, attacks, right? Low hanging fruit is we have to maintain our technology and we have to invest in our technology and we can't be running on a system that's 20 years old. Um, that's yeah. Uh, those I, are the broad strokes. Yeah. That's right. And I don't need machine learning to tell, tell people that. Yeah. But zero day stuff where a bad actor or a country, a state actor decides that they want to attack something. That's, it, it, it doesn't matter how good your systems are, there are going to be holes that they're going to be able to get into. And so being able to identify those holes as fast as possible and respond to them is going to need something that can scale like AI. You got it. It's interesting too, because it, you're you're banging hard on a point that I always make in my industry because you know, there's only 18% of us, and that's federal government's data that actually that says we're the people that know what's actually really going on. <laughs> you know? And it's because there's so much focus, man, on prevention. So much focus on prevention. But the, the, the people are like, you know, prevent, prevent, prevent. They're never really worried about the response. 
Because the broad strokes can be the prevention side to get things up to where, where you're at. But you are so bang on when you're saying that no matter what, people can still get in, especially when you're talking nation states, you're talking organized cyber terrorism, they're going to get in. It's what's your response after that? What's your playbook after they're already inside your door? That's right. We're, we are the complexity. So um, I have, I have uh, done architecture for software development activities. I have done cloud architecture. I have done enterprise architecture across enter entire enterprises, very large um, multinational enterprises. The systems are too complicated. That the, the reality is, is that uh, uh, we had an application. It was a very simple application. It was in development works. And I decided to enable automated security testing on it. We didn't even get in the front door. We identified right off the bat that there were three libraries that were being used that had already been deprecated because of security events. And when I went and talked with software developers, they didn't even know the libraries were in there. They had been using a package that had those libraries in there. So unless I had done the security, automated security testing, we would never have caught it. It would have gone all the way to production and maybe somewhere down the line, somebody would have done a pen test or something and identified it. The reality is, is the systems are too complicated to, for us to be able to catch everything all the time. And so anomaly detection in security events, which by the way, machine learning is brilliant at anomaly detection. Talk about millions of data points, billions of data points. That's right. That's right. We, we have, most organizations have the security log data to be able to train uh, a model that can provide them some kind of security anomaly detection within the events as they're happening. Um, and, and, and you can make it AI by enabling a simple chatbot that reaches out to you and says, hey, I'm seeing some anomalous traffic and you might want to do something about it. And now you've got, you've taken a machine learning model that identified an anomaly and you've automated a function. So you, you've created artificial intelligence to tell you that something might be happening. Yeah. It's brilliant, man. Uh, I feel like we could do like 18 parts to this show for real, just because <laughs> but I like, I like where we went today with, with the ethics and the privacy of everything, because it's, it's a brave new world. If I could use that phrase. And I can't wait to see what's going to transpire. And at the same time, I'm also going to cautiously stand back and watch because it, I used to think back to the days when I was a, a police cadet, right? And I mean, this is like old school, you know, I was so excited to, to use the radar gun, but that, you know, to <laughs> like, let's go catch people speeding, you know, even though I, I was speeding all the time. But then I learned that the, when I was 16, that the same manufacturers for the guns were the same manufacturers for the radar detectors. You know, and then they would improve the guns and then they would improve the detectors right afterwards. And, you know, it was, but it was the same freaking people, <laughs> the same manufacturers that were doing this. It's, it's like an arms manufacturer feeding both sides of a war. Yep. Exactly. And that's where I see AI too, man. No, no joke coming up, you know, and especially when you get into to quantum computing coming down the road, the same people that are going to develop this are the same people that are going to be able to sell it to anybody, both good and bad. Absolutely. And there is a little bit of a Pandora's box to it. it um, my hope is, is that we can decide to do the right things. I mean, I do the right things. I, look, I, I'm, I, I don't wear a tinfoil hat, but I do go into things wide, eyes wide open. And I think the vast majority of people, if they would do it, it's interesting. I will open a Facebook feed in incognito in a browser just so that I can see what other people are posting. So 
I game the algorithm so that I get access to more data. Um, and I, and I'm, I spend the time to learn. It's the same with, I, I don't want to talk politics, but it's the same with politics, right? I actually investigate the different people that are running. Don't just defer to, you know, oh, well, I always vote this way. So I vote this way. I actually look into it. So I have some understanding. And, and I think this new generation, the, the millennial generation and, and the generation going forward, my kids, they are more eyes wide open. They have always had devices. My, my son, the other day, we were doing a call with his grandmother in the States and we did it audio only. And he goes, where's the video? He's five. He's like, he, he wasn't aware that there were calls without video. So I, I'm hoping that the new generation doesn't get lazy and they go into this eyes wide open, still using the technology, but going into it a little skeptical, a little bit eyes wide open careful about what they share and where they go and stuff like that. But at the same time, getting the most benefit out of the technology. You got it. I couldn't send it any better, man. Neither of us are tinfoil hat people. And we, we love the real use cases of the technology. It's exciting to see where it's going. You know, and it, like, at the same time, we're just cautious because we want to make sure that the world uses it in the right ways. And I'm optimistic enough to know that the right people are going to be in place, to believe that the right people are going to be in place, to to counter those ones that are just. There was someone I I had scotch with actually, and she was developing things in the quantum area, you know. And she looked at me in the middle of this. This was two years ago, you know. We're just drinking scotch, and we just got done pitching TV producers. And she was saying, you know, she's like, I'm, I'm concerned because I feel like Oppenheimer working on the atomic bomb right now. And the same message that I told her, I'll tell everybody that's listening right now, because she's like, I don't even think she was in quantum, right? And using a medical application and also weaponry, no joke, like weaponry to to federal to nationwide governments, you know, across the the world, and to weaponize quantum computing, you know. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, that that's going to happen. It is. She was worried. She goes, I feel like I'm Oppenheimer on the atomic bomb, and I don't even know if I should proceed with this. And I said, Listen, if you have the chance to do good with any piece of technology, no matter what, whether it's you or somebody else, whatever good you put into the world, there will be somebody that will corrupt it, that will twist it. But you still have the responsibility because you can. But now the question is, will you? Will you be the one that will actually put it out there? Because what my beliefs are that good will always triumph. There may be some suck for a while because there's always that fight going back and forth. But if you have the responsibility to do to put something good into the world, you need to do it. Well, and the fact that she asked the question, in my mind, that answers it. The fact, because you're right, there, look, there's, once a Pandora's box is open, somebody somewhere is going to do something bad with it. So as long as there are also good people who question that, who say, should I be doing this? As long as those people are also working on it, then we, we get, because the, the flip side is, is that we just get the bad actors. If we close it down and say, nope, we're not going to do any of it, because of the possibility that something bad might come from it, let me assure you the bad people are not going to pay attention to that and they're going to do it anyway. Yep, you got it. I almost made a political statement, but I'm going to refrain on this show. Okay. <laughs> Today, <laughs> I'm in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right on. <laughs> That's great, my man. I appreciate your perspective. Sean, thank you for being on, my friend. I, I would love to have a conversation even offline and just continue this because this is amazing, brother. Thank you for being on. Uh, Rick, I absolutely appreciate it. Um, you have been incredible and, and and it has been a great conversation. Awesome. Everyone go to www.technologyleader.co.nz to check out everything that Sean's about. And that's it. Do that right now as soon as you stop this episode. Boom. Thanks, Sean. 
What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.